Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to this three-part podcast on Adam and Eve. Now, I won't be discussing the creation story. We'll save that for another fascinating podcast in the future. But what I do want to say right off the bat is that many erroneously conclude that they have to choose to believe either science or the Bible, but not both. It's also a popular belief that science and the Bible are in conflict, and therefore intelligence would be on the side of unbelief, and therefore only the uneducated, naive, or foolish people can trust the contents of the Bible, and especially the creation of man. But did you know that some of the most brilliant minds of all time Accept the Bible as truth. Here's just a few examples. Sir Isaac Newton. Yeah, he was that smart guy who invented calculus and discovered gravity. He's also a believer of the Bible. And then there was that guy, Albert Einstein. He developed a little thing called the theory of relativity. He's a believer. Now, C.S. Lewis, he started out not believing, and he so desperately tried to convince himself that God didn't exist that in the end, he ended up convincing himself that it was all true. He's the writer of Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, and a bunch of other wonderful books you really should read. Louis Pasteur, well, he's the guy that invented pasteurization. He was a believer. Gregor Mendel, you learned about him in biology. He is the founder of genetics, a believer. Florence Nightingale, she transformed the profession of nursing. In fact, later she wrote that it was God that called her into her profession. And then there was this amazing guy named Jesus. Yeah. He believed the contents of the Bible, too. As we study the story of Adam and Eve, or really any part of the Bible, remember, the Bible is not a book on how God did it. It's really much more about the fact that God did it. When we begin with God, things become easier than beginning with science and then trying to somehow fit God in. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis in Greek actually means beginning. And it's the foundation book upon which all the other books of the Bible stand. It's a book that reaches back to hidden eons of eternity to a time when God began with his creative work. God is basically supernaturally revealed to us the secrets of the beginning of the universe. And we believe these stories were first told to a human by God. Maybe it was Moses on Mount Sinai. But we know that 
they were supernaturally told things that no eyewitness was there to see. The work of creation. And these first chapters of Genesis go far beyond human experience and all scientific understanding. By their very nature, they represent a direct communication by God in some way. Now, if you've read Genesis, you might be confused by the fact that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 seem to be repeating the same creation story. Well, in a way they are, but they're written in two different styles, which are used to emphasize different aspects of God's truth. It's the same story, but two different perspectives. In a way, the first creation story, Genesis 1, is written to a non-Jewish world, and it starts from the very beginning of creation and gives an account of God creating the universe, the heaven and the earth, and the creation of man as the pinnacle of his creation. And it introduces this idea of a plural God, Elohim, the almighty God of creation, and the idea of a universal God who creates, preserves, and governs. And that's all true. Genesis chapter 2 talks about a personal God, Lord God, Yahweh God, whom the Hebrews identify with. Genesis 2 starts at a different point in creation. There's already the dry earth and the story begins with the creation of man and then later woman. And this chapter gives us a more in-depth detail of the creation of man and woman. So it's really important to read both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 because chapter 2 cannot be fully understood without looking at chapter 1. Chapter 2 focuses on creation of man. And it's the story of how man's transgressions are the cause for all subsequent evil in the world. Over the next three podcasts, we're going to take a deeper look at the amazing story of Adam and Eve. Let's start by looking at the culmination of God's work, which occurred sometime on what we call day six of creation when God created man. Now, was this a literal 24 hours? Maybe, could be, but a work day for God can be a thousand years and a thousand years can be one day to God. Peter actually wrestled with this idea in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So, right off the bat, let's not get hung up on this 24-hour thing. The wording in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is when God is about to create man. When you look at it, 
It's really unique and different from the wording used to describe the rest of God's creation up to this point. We're about to get to the crowning of God's work. The creation of the world is, if you can kind of imagine a pyramid and ascending development of life with man at the very top. It seems that man is the aim of God's creation. If you look at each day of creation in the Bible up to this point, it reads, and God said, and God said. But look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said. Can you feel the break? It's like God saying, drum roll, please. We also get to see the presence of the triune God in this great decision to create man. Starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The wording separates the creation of man from all other creation. We are distinct from everything else. And we're also given preeminence over everything else. Man is created last when everything else is ready for him. God created this beautiful world to meet man's physical needs, to be a visual delight to his emotional needs, and to train his intellect and develop his power of rulership. Atmosphere, vegetation, living creatures are all prepared to surround man. Now, I'm going to introduce a word that perhaps you've never heard before, and it's used in a unique way in the first two books of the Bible. And it's used to describe how God created man. That word in Hebrew is bara, B-A-R-A. Bara means to create from nothing. The first time bara is used in the Bible is in the very first sentence of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when God created the universe from nothing, bara. The second time this word is used is in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 21, when God created the first life, it's what we call sentient life on day five. This is where he creates the sea creatures and the birds. Bara, from nothing. And then the third time it's used is in Genesis chapter one, 
verse 27, when God created man, Adam, which in Hebrew means human. We, we say Adam. God created man, bara, or to create from nothing. The Bible wording is very particular and specific, almost as if God knew that at some future point, people would say that man evolved from something else. But the wording in Genesis 1.27 is very specific and separates creation of man from other creation. It's noteworthy that while other creatures are created, quote, after its kind, this time when it talks about the creation of man three times, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible reminds us that God created man after God's own image, not after its own kind. Man is created bara. In fact, bara is repeated three times in one verse. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it describes the creation of man. But in order for you to understand this, I want you to open up your Bibles and first look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. I want you to be able to see what I'm saying about the difference between the creation of sea creatures and birds, bara, versus land animals, not bara, and eventually the creation of humans, bara. Starting at verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created. Here we have bara. He created from nothing. The great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. God created them bara. But then it says they will increase in number according to their kinds. Perhaps that leaves room for evolution. Now, we will go into more depth with the creation story, as I said in a future podcast. But I want to plant an important seed here. So take a look now at how land animals were created. This is in verse 24. It's not the word bara, but it says, and I quote, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Does this then leave room for a different way that land animals were created? To summarize again, the Hebrew word bara means to create from nothing. The first part of creation, 
very first sentence, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bara. The second time we see it, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created bara. And then finally, with the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created bara, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, bara. Male and female, he created them. Bara. Isn't that cool? God planned and desired for man's existence so that we could have fellowship with him. He loved us so much that he presented himself to man in some type of human form. And the Bible tells us, He created man and woman in his own image. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we get this beautiful verse. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This is an image of the personal God, Yahweh, Lord God, bending down and physically creating Adam and literally breathing life into him. Created in his own image. Let's think about that for a moment. The idea of the nobility and the dignity of man being in the image of God, that's central to our Christian theology. This idea is repeated throughout scripture. While God is fully spirit, he is also presented as a living person conscious of his own existence. He's the supreme intelligence who thinks, plans, and creates. Man is also created as self-conscious with a reasoning intelligence to better understand God. The prophet Jeremiah actually talks about this ability in the Old Testament in chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. The Bible tells us we have been given the ability to understand God. We've been given emotions. The Bible describes God as experiencing emotions as well. Love, hate, joy, peace. And we fulfill our personality emotionally when we commune with God through loving him and loving what he loves. We have been created to be filled with the emotions of joy and gladness as 
we enjoy God and his works. And we're also told to hate evil and to experience that wonderful peace which transcends all understanding. God's personality also includes having a will. This free will was also given to us. We have the will to obey or disobey God. We can choose to believe or not believe God. And we will look at how the ability to have this will affects our relationship with the whole universe. In a mysterious way, all creation is so involved with man that the fall and the future restoration of man affects the harmony or suffering of all creation. Being made in the image of God also describes the dignity of our body and the respect for all human life. We're going to also take a look at the fact that now because sin has entered the world, our image bearing of God in all aspects of our life has become blurred. Romans 3 Verse 23, Paul talked about this where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, that amazing, glorious image of God reflected in the first man is now less than it was. It's less than God originally created us to be, but we still have a glimmer. It's still there in every man and woman in varying proportions. The sacredness of every human life is based on this understanding. Genesis chapter 2 has a central theme. It's that beautiful relationship between the Lord God Yahweh, this personal God, with the man, Adam, the human. God gave Adam everything he created. God personally created Adam and breathed life into his lungs. And then we read, God gives Adam a park, a beautiful place created just for him. In fact, the name Eden means park. And this really paints a picture of perfect beauty. My husband, my son, and I recently visited the Grand Tetons, and I kept thinking as I was surrounded by this unspeakable beauty that this must be a glimmer of what Eden was like. There were fruit trees and vegetation and amazing plant life. The scent must have been incredible. And Adam didn't have any allergies. He could sniff away. Every tree was pleasant to the eyes and good to eat. The Bible tells us that right in the middle of this garden, God planted two trees, the tree of life and the tree of what we traditionally call the knowledge of good and evil. But a better term would be the tree of good and bad. And we'll talk about that later. Okay, where was Eden? The Bible gives us a few clues in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, when it talks about four rivers. Based on this description, 
Bible scholars place it somewhere near Babylon, which is in Iraq. The exact location can't be ascertained because the Bible tells us Eden was destroyed during the Great Flood. And of course, the world's topography has changed over the years as well. But scientists and Bible scholars agree the eastern Mediterranean region is what we call the cradle of civilization. That's where it all began, folks. It appears from the Bible that Adam, Adam, was created as an adult. Did you ever think about that? But as an adult, he was still an infant (laughs) with endless possibility and so much to learn. Do you know any adults like that? The Bible tells us that Adam had the ultimate teacher, God. God personally took charge of Adam's education, his mental, emotional, and moral education. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Man has been given by God dominion over the whole earth. So as part of his education, God brings each animal to Adam and asks him to name them. Naming's really important in the Bible. To name something means you have to spend time with it to understand its character, its, its nature, its unique ways. Now, we don't know how long this took, but we can imagine that Adam during this time had long conversations with God and We can't help but be in awe of the wisdom on how this task of naming the animals would help to develop Adam's intellect, his perception, and also to help develop his special relationship with God and with the animals. Now, what would be some special benefits of naming the animals? Certainly it was educational, but It also helped Adam to better understand his role and his position relative to the animal world and that great responsibility this entailed. And some actually think that during this time before the fall, man had a deep, special relationship and maybe even unique communication with the animals. Think Dr. Doolittle maybe? Also, man wasn't seen as a threat because animals were not seen as food. And also, animals didn't eat each other. How do we know this? Look at your Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 29, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. 
wow, the lion truly could lay down with the lamb. And Adam, he could pick any animal he wanted to to be his playmate. It seems from the Bible, this was also part of Adam's education. He spent a ton of time hanging out with the animals. But the Bible said, quote, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found, unquote. It's kind of beautiful that God wanted Adam to come to his own conclusion that he wanted human companionship, because this paves the way for the woman to be received in love by Adam, because it was his heart's desire to have a companion like him. She will represent the answer to his discovered longings and desires. That wording, no suitable helper, well, it means counterpart, partner, companion. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I love the way that a 17th century Bible scholar by the name of Matthew Henry describes this creation of woman. He says, quote, Eve was taken from Adam's breast, not his head to be above him and not his feet to be beneath him, but near to his heart to stand by his side. God took woman from man so that we would have this love and this bond stronger than death, stronger than the bond to our parents, a drive to one another because we were initially one flesh. God's creative gift was that the two would again become one flesh in the marriage relationship. And God the Father is kind of like the father of the bride, because he gave Eve to Adam. God intended that we would always trace back our marriage relationship back to this gift that God gave to both of them. And especially, God also intended that this intimate relationship of man and woman and love and joy and service on earth would lead them to an understanding of their love relationship to God. In the Bible, God compares his love to his people to the love of a husband for his wife. Okay, now I have to stop right here and clear up a conspiracy theory. Men, you do not have one less rib than women. <laughs> In most cases, we all have 12 pairs of ribs. So guys, you did not get shortchanged in the bargain. Next week, we'll take a closer look at Eve and that fateful day in the garden. But I want to leave you with a final thought for today. 
Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray that you may love them and see them the way that God loves them and sees them. You are a part of them. Husbands, pray for your wives. Ask God to open your eyes to the ways that they bear God's image. Young people, pray for that future spouse, even if God has not yet brought them to you. All of us, pray for strength to become daily more like that image bearer of Christ in your thoughts, your words, and your deeds.